0: Good Dominic Barfield here, and this is the RVC Clinical Podcast. Thank you for listening, and thank you for subscribing on your smartphone or generic fruit-based device. <clears throat> We're really grateful for you taking the time to download and listen to this RVC podcast, and we don't ask for much in return. But we be incredibly grateful if you could pop to Apple Podcast or Acast or wherever you get your podcast, apart from Spotify. Spotify, because you can't actually leave a review. But um, if you could leave us a review, that would be great. Obviously, a five-star review is be preferable. Um, but we'd. Greatly appreciate a couple of moments of your time to be able to do that. So, joining Brian and myself in our in our virtual studio, um, I've actually snuck into the real studio, but uh, I won't tell Jack that. Um, we we have a wonderful Dr. Jack Lawson, who's one of our lecturers in internal medicine here at the RVC. Hello, Jack. Hello, nice to nice to be here. That's uh, that's very very polite and understanding, and we thought we'd um, we'd uh, talk to you about something that that we believe is, is close to your heart. So, um, it is uh, the, the sort of relationship between chronic kidney disease and, and hypertension.
1: Yes, um, I, I guess that is quite close to my heart. I've done um, you know quite a bit of work on those two subjects, and um, recently kind of put together an article um, linking the two of them. So, um, yeah, I, I think that's something that I do spend a lot of time thinking about, and that I think is uh, quite important for practitioners to think about as
0: well. Great. So, so maybe um, if we could start at the, at the start. So um, with with regards to the kidney and, and regulation of blood pressure, so what why, why is it important?
1: Well, I guess when we think about blood pressure, um, there's kind of two main organ systems at play. There's the cardiovascular system, the heart, uh, which we think about as primarily responsible for kind of the short-term regulation of blood pressure kind of second to second minutes to minute and then we've got the um, the kidneys as well which we think about more as um, responsible for kind of long-term regulation of blood pressure so um, they're kind of one of the two organ systems that are kind of fundamentally involved um, so I guess if there's something wrong with the kidneys then um, as you can imagine um, kind of we often see abnormalities in blood pressure arise from that as well so, um, yeah, I guess that they're, they're kind of one of the two major body systems involved. And so um, when something goes wrong with them, blood pressure often goes awry. Um, do you want me to talk a bit more about how they regulate you know, blood pressure? Yeah,
0: maybe just a little recap. Yeah, if, if that's all right. Yeah. Um,
1: so I guess in healthy animals, um, we have to, and us, I guess we have to maintain our systolic blood pressure within kind of a relatively narrow optimal, optimal range. Uh, just basically to ensure that we have adequate perfusion of our organs uh, without kind of pathologically damaging those organs um, by um, forcing too much blood through them. And I guess that um, normal was kind of hard to define um, in small animals sometimes, uh, given that um, by measuring blood pressure, we're often uh, changing it uh, because of situational hypertension. But I guess that we kind of define normal maybe around about 120 millimetres of mercury, somewhere between 110, 130 being average, maybe up to 140 millimetres of mercury um, being the kind of top end. And in order to kind of keep it in that level, um, our kidney has to uh, to work quite hard because I guess we're constantly um, ingesting different amounts of fluid and different amounts of sodium. And so, our kidneys having to constantly adjust the amount of uh, fluid and sodium in our bodies to maintain our blood pressure uh, within that level. Um, so, since water follows sodium, it, it's all about sodium really uh, in the kidney. And the major way that the kidney regulates blood pressure is via sodium and how much sodium it's excreting. So, if the kidney senses that um, there's um, kind of a high Volume of sodium in the the tubular filtrate, uh, reflecting a high volume of, of sodium um, in the periphery and in the extra in the extracellular fluid, then um, that's going to cause the kidney to start excreting more sodium, um, and um, therefore blood pressure is going to go down because extracellular fluid volume is going to go down, and the opposite is true if the kidney senses that there is a, a decrease in in sodium. the extracellular fluid uh, then uh, we're going to conserve sodium Uh, that conserved sodium in our body is going to increase the amount of extracellular fluid that's uh, in our body and hence it's going to increase blood pressure Um, and i I guess our kidney can do that intrinsically um, but uh, the main system that it uses to kind of fulfill this role is the renin-angiotensin aldosterone system the RAS that everyone kind of knows about which is our main sodium conserving system and that's the system that's activated when our our kidney perceives
0: uh, a decrease in uh, systolic blood pressure. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And so, and so, you, obviously, like complicated systems, we try and make things uh, quite kind of simple, don't we, in, in in our in our minds? So, 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 is is there something that's been worked out as in why in cats um, that the I suppose the link, if you like, between hypertension and, and chronic kidney disease?
1: So there is no simple answer to that question, uh, unfortunately, because um, the true answer is I think that uh, no one knows. Um, uh, it's kind of a probably a complex and multifactorial relationship. Um, I guess there's a few different theories uh, that probably contribute to uh, why our uh, blood pressure goes up if uh, we have kidney disease, if, if, or if you're a cat, uh, if, you're, if your cat has kidney disease. Um, And I can go through a couple of those. The the first being that uh, we tend to to see increased activation of the renin angiotensin aldosterone system in uh, chronic kidney disease, um, which is expected and physiological really, because in chronic kidney disease, the uh, number of functioning nephrons uh, that we have um, goes down. So each nephron has to work a bit harder uh, to um, clear all, all our uremic toxins. Uh, in order to do that, um, the, the single nephron uh, GFR has to go up. And so uh, the renin-angiotensin system is activated to increase glomerular pressure. The um, problem with that is it also increases systemic um, blood pressure as well. Uh, so um, it's maladaptive in, in that sense. I guess that's a really nice theory but um, in cats it's a bit more complicated I'm sort of focusing on cats I guess because that's um, what I've done most of my uh, that's the species I've done most of my research in uh, but in cats, there's no kind of there's a bit of conflicting evidence uh, about how much the renin angiotensin aldosterone system is activated in chronic kidney disease, and whether that is uh, truly associated with uh, being hypertension hypertensive. Sorry, um, so it's a bit unclear. But in humans, definitely, um, there's a clear link between activation of the renin angiotensin aldosterone system and hypertension. Um, there's also increased sympathetic nervous system activity um, in chronic kidney disease patients, uh, which is another uh, potential etiology of, of hypertension in CKD. Um, in CKD, there's dysfunctional um, activity of the renal afferent nerves, which increases general sympathetic activity. And um, as, we, as we know, uh, activation of the sympathetic nervous system causes vasoconstriction and hence could lead to hypertension Um, and I guess the final thing that we uh, think can contribute to um, well the final thing I'll touch on uh, that I think we can that we can maybe uh, consider um, as a contributor to hypertension in chronic kidney disease is endothelial dysfunction so dysfunction of the endothelial cells that line our our capillaries Um, basically they are um, unable to relax just because of sustained Um, sustained uh, stimulation really by vasoconstrictive mediators like angiotensin and aldosterone um, just causing a sustained constriction of these uh, small vessels um, which again leads to hypertension because any kind of vasoconstriction is going to cause an increase in our systolic blood pressure. So I guess at the moment, as a kind of short answer, we think it's renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system dysfunction um, increased sympathetic activity and uh, also endothelial dysfunction being the major contributors. Um, but I guess as it, with any question that leads to that long an answer, um, you can kind of uh, guess that we don't truly know.
0: And 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 with that as well, so the the kidney is obviously responsible in, in in trying to maintain. Um, blood pressure. And then when it goes awry, when there is hypertension, it, it's actually going to to damage itself. Um, that, that seems a, a, a bit poor planning, doesn't
1: it? <laughs> yeah. And so I guess in these patients, there's uh, kind of a cause and an effect. And um, sometimes we don't know which way around it is. Uh, uh, did they uh, get hypertensive? And did, did that then lead to Um, secondary uh, kind of target organ damage in the kidney and uh, kidney disease or did um, they um, get kidney disease and develop hypertension uh, secondary to that Um, but yeah you're you're absolutely right The the kidney is one of our kind of major target organs that that can be damaged by hypertension just because of the uh, minute vasculature that's there and and how important the glomerulus is for um, uh, for for, uh, for yeah for 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 maintaining our GFR, I I mean, I can talk a bit more about how how kind of hypertension leads to kidney
0: damage, if you like. Yeah, I'd 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 be interested.
1: Well, I guess at the moment we we consider that hypertension leads to uh, kidney damage primarily due to the relationship between hypertension and proteinuria. So, um, hypertension at the glomerular level is going to increase hydrostatic pressure within the glomerulus. Uh, and that's going to force uh, protein from the glomerulus into the, the renal tubules, and where it shouldn't normally be. Uh, so we, should, we don't normally have um, a, a high concentration of proteins in, in our tubular filtrate in health. Uh, but um, in the presence of uh, glomerular hypertension, then um, we're going to see just a lot of proteins forced through the glomerular filtration barrier um, just by hydrostatic pressure. Um, And the presence of these proteins in the the tubular filtrate is uh, nephrotoxic. It it seems to cause direct damage to the tubular epithelial cells, so the cells that line the tubule, um, which contains the filtrate. and again, it's a, a bit unclear exactly why that protein in the tubular filtrate causes this uh, this damage to the cells, but it, it seems to induce the production of um, various inflammatory mediators, um, uh, inflammatory cytokines uh, and profibrotic cytokines that uh, basically just attract um, inflammatory cells like macrophages and, uh, and cause cell death. So. Presently, uh, I guess we think that hypertension is um, mainly uh, acting in the kidney via um, its effects on proteinuria. Uh, and those things are actually kind of incredibly difficult to, to tease out in, in studies because um, of um, how consistently kind of proteinuria follows hypertension, really.
0: Okay, and then, and then as far as how this translates, uh, Jack, to clinical science in, in the patient, so I suppose we're not, not weird, but I, I imagine it's not uh, a, a stretch for, for everyone to you know, be aware of the, the common presenting signs of polydipsia and polyurium, and poor appetite and weight loss in the early stages of, of kidney disease, but is there anything um, that you can link with, with blood pressure that, that owners tend to see with um, hypertension? Yeah, I mean,
1: I think that's been historically a, a reason why blood pressure or hypertension, sorry, in cats with chronic kidney disease has been so underdiagnosed in that uh, really the clinical signs, um, clinical signs that could be appreciable to a, an owner just aren't there um, before they're kind of catastrophic in nature, essentially. Yeah. So, um, if we think about the uh the organs which are the the main target organs for for damage in in a hypertensive state um we've got the, the kidneys as we already spoke about and the, the owner's not going to be able to perceive um any kind of uh, changes there really um then that leaves us with the the brain the heart uh, and the eye and um the eye is obviously the most apparent thing to uh, any um owner because that's something on the outside that they can see Uh, and so a very common presenting complaint for for a cat with hypertension uh, is going to be or the most probably the most common presenting complaint uh, of a cat with hypertension would be um, ocular abnormalities and uh, they're going to include things like sudden onset blindness um related to uh, retinal detachment or, or potentially an intraocular bleed like hyphema um obscuring the cat's vision uh or the owner noticing uh blood uh, in the eye uh, as well uh quite commonly so um it's primarily going to be the ocular abnormalities that owners are going to present for but um i guess that's very late onset very late stage hypertension and so that's the the difficulty really owners won't notice it until um quite late on
0: and sometimes I suppose you don't, you don't actually notice when your cat does go blind as well because of their understanding of the environment that they're in. Yeah,
1: absolutely. So, um, yeah, very, very difficult for owners. Um, I mean, these cats uh, probably are, aren't are feeling great uh, because of uh, their hypertension, but can be very difficult in, in old cats. Um, if they're very sedentary, uh, They, as you say, they're staying in... Um, one environment, they, they might not do a lot anyway. Uh, so uh, noticing these subtle changes can be tricky. I mean, human patients with h- uncontrolled hypertension often report kind of headaches and, and things like that. And uh, we definitely do see hypertensive encephalopathy uh, in our cats with hypertension. So it's very possible that cats are suffering from these. Uh, morbidities as well, and we just don't notice them because, um, yeah, we're we're not, we're not astute enough to pick these up.
0: And I suppose we we're, we're we're talking about like a link between chronic kidney disease and and, uh, and hypertension. But I suppose when when you're thinking about like looking at geriatric patients, do you think that you should always have a look at blood pressure, like regardless of of concerns about uh, chronic kidney disease, or do you think that we we should in general look at blood pressure a bit more?
1: Yeah, um,
0: yeah, I guess is the short answer
1: to that. I mean, definitely uh, we should be assessing patients who have chronic kidney disease. I think that's um, without a doubt. Uh, And um, we kind of know that um, maybe historically even that's not been done super well. Uh, There was a study out of Vet Compass uh, a few years ago where only 25% of cats who had kidney disease had had one or more blood pressure measurements. So. I don't want to be too doom and gloom on that because I think definitely that's getting a lot better uh, in the last few years as people are becoming more aware of the importance of uh, detecting kind of changes in blood pressure early. Um, but even even in cats who are um, you know geriatric cats or senior cats, uh, we should be measuring blood pressure uh, on a, a regular basis, and um, I would say you know yearly uh, at least for for cats over nine years old. Um, and potentially in cats who are um, very geriatric maybe every six months um, because age is a major risk factor for the development of hypertension in cats. We know that um, as they get older, uh, average uh, systolic blood pressure goes up. So um, uh, the older they get, the the more at risk they are uh, of developing hypertension. So uh, all the more important to, to keep a regular eye on their
0: blood pressure. And, um, and do you have any <clears throat> particular preference when when dealing with cats about how blood pressure is is measured Re- without going to the the details of that I just wondered whether um, certain colleagues pre- prefer I don't know also the metric to to, uh, to using a, a Doppler so uh, yeah I
1: mean the, as per the kind of consensus guidelines at the moment um, the We recommend uh, Doppler measurement of of feline blood pressure. Uh, So Doppler in cats, uh, in dogs, oscillometric is going to be more more reliable, um, but we'd still, in preference, use Doppler for measurement of systolic blood pressure in dogs also. So uh, in both species, um, we'd prefer Doppler. Um, In in dogs, you could probably get away with oscillometric a a little bit more, Um, but in cats, kind of, for me, oscillometric would be a big no-no. It's very unreliable. Um, So yeah, Doppler all the way, Uh, and also kind of trying to maintain a consistent place that you measure it in in the same patient we know that different patients uh, or patients can blood pressure can vary quite a lot between the the tail versus their limb um, so if it's being measured in a, a different place every time they they come in then um, that would be uh, kind of a source of of error uh, so yeah kind of Doppler and consistently on one limb would be uh, the way we currently do it and
0: and and so as far as what you can, or what is considered as as hypertension, so that that's sort of greater than equal to the uh, one hundred and sixty millimeters of of mercury, and it's a bit a bit grey, is it under that uh, amount?
1: Yes, I mean at the moment we've got over one hundred and sixty being classified as hypertensive, and then between one hundred and forty and one hundred and sixty uh, is now uh, classified as prehypertensive based upon the ACVIM guidelines. Um, and I guess that is a bit of a grey area. Uh, if if I had a patient who whose blood pressure was measuring uh, within that zone, uh, and they had no evidence of any target organ damage, so uh, we looked in their eyes, and uh, no evidence of any uh, kind of bullets detachment or, or retinal hemorrhage, um, and uh, they had no other kind of comorbidities, I, I wouldn't be looking to intervene in that um, in that area. Um, I have seen. Um, that people are getting kind of even more proactive um, at, at the moment and, and asking us uh, for these patients who have a blood pressure at kind of 150 or, or something like that. Um, you know, would we start antihypertensive therapy uh, in that grey zone? Um, and at present, the answer is no, we, we wouldn't. We would wait until it was uh, 160 or, or over consistently. Um, but who knows, uh, in the future, um, those guidelines might change and there might be more of an indication to intervene earlier. But at, at present, we're not. At, at present, we're saying, okay, those guys, You know, we want to keep a close eye on them because uh, they may develop hypertension at, at a later stage. Because as I was saying, as animals get older, their blood pressure goes up anyway so if they're measuring at 150 maybe in a year or two years time they're going to be measuring 160 170 and there's going to be a reason for us to intervene but at present we would we would just kind of leave those guys alone but with close monitoring
0: and, and can i ask what's the overlap jack in when we're treating for hypertension in in chronic kidney disease patients is there an overlap of some of the treatments are going to be beneficial to uh, what you're treating, I suppose, the kidney disease or the hypertension? Or is there synergy in um, everything that you're doing to treat a cat with chronic kidney disease?
1: Yeah, there's a lot of synergy. um, A lot of synergy. Uh, And what we would say is that uh, um, when we're thinking about a cat with chronic kidney disease, we're obviously diagnosing them with chronic kidney disease and then optimally we are staging them on the iris staging uh, kind of system um, and that's kind of based on creatinine concentration and potentially to a lesser extent SDMA concentration as well and then we substage them by by proteinuria to say if they're proteinuric or or not um, and we also substage them as hypertensive or not um, and what we, I would always suggest is that we if hypertension is present in a, a cat that we uh, treat the hypertension first before deciding whether they are uh, hypertensive or not because Uh, there's definitely evidence to suggest that um, control of hypertension in uh, hypertensive cats uh, can significantly decrease proteinuria. Uh, So it's possible that um, if you get the hypertension under control, the the proteinuria disappears, and we don't need to add in any kind of more specific antiproteinuric treatment. Um, And I guess the reason I make that distinction in cats is because um, in cats, our our first-line Uh, treatment for hypertension um, in CKD patients is going to be amlodipine, which um, is a a medication which is very good for uh, decreasing blood pressure. We see a a decrease of, um, well, I mean, in the literature, it's quite wide. Uh, They state between 30 and 70 millimetres of mercury, uh, but on average, maybe 40 or so millimetres of mercury. We see um, kind of a good... Uh, decrease uh, after commencing uh, that drug but it's not kind of a targeted antiproteinuric therapy uh, so um, the reason I kind of specifically mention this is that you might not need uh, a specifically targeted proteinuric therapy in, in these guys that are hypertensive because amlodipine by its uh, effect on decreasing systolic blood pressure might resolve the proteinuria uh, that was potentially occurring secondary to the, uh, the, the patient's hypertension. Um, and in, I guess that's kind of different to dogs because in dogs, um, we're, we're using um, uh, medications primarily that target the renin adon- al- angiotensin aldosterone system, uh, from the offset to, to treat dogs with uh hypertension. So we're going to be starting them maybe on, on benazepril or, or something like that. Um, and so obviously, there's going to be a lot more of a link there between treating the hypertension, treating the proteinuria, treating both uh at once, but in cats, we'd generally start with amlodipine uh, see what that does to the protein and then maybe progress to antiprotein therapy if um if it hasn't been controlled by the amlodipine alone um i, I guess i should also mention telmisartan. if if now would be a good time to do that yeah yeah, yeah please do yeah uh, because that's something that um is as people will be aware a, a new medication that's been brought out uh brought to the market for the treatment of hypertension in cats um, and in that circumstance if we had a very heavily proteinuric cat who is hypertensive well well, telmosartan is um, an antitensin uh, receptor um, blocker uh, and so that's going to have uh, significant effects on proteinuria and on hypertension uh, and so that would be kind of a consideration as well um, to, to use uh, telmosartan. Um, which uh, we don't have as much experience with uh, treating hypertension with uh, telmosartan and CKD uh, as we do amlodipine because amlodipine has been around for a long time. and telmisartan's kind of a new kid on the block, but um, it's licensed and um, it's likely equally as uh, efficacious. So uh, something to consider as well.
0: And, and do people use ACE inhibitors? so
1: so in cats not not so hot um so in cats the ace inhibitors like benazapril um and others generally only um Decrease uh, blood pressure by 10 to 15 millimeters of mercury. So we don't recommend those as kind of a sole agent uh, therapy in, in cats with chronic kidney disease. I mean, in dogs with chronic kidney disease who are hypertensive, who are hypertensive we'd go straight for the benazapril or telmisartan. Absolutely, um, benazepril would be a very reasonable thing to reach for in a dog. But in a, in a cat, we know that it's not very effective at all, um, and so uh, we wouldn't recommend them um, for, as a as a sole therapy. I mean, they do have a use. So um, one, a use for benazapril in a cat with CKD might be if we um, were giving them amlodipine and we'd kind of maxed out our dose of amlodipine and they were still hypertensive and we wanted to add a second agent, then maybe something like benazapril would be an appropriate addition there uh, just to try and get their blood pressure a little bit lower and uh, into our kind of target range. Or for instance, in um, a cat where we had appropriately uh, controlled their blood pressure with amlodipine. However, they were still proteinuric uh, when we were assessing their UPC and we wanted to try and decrease their proteinuria, then adding in uh, benazepril at that time, um, might be, um, valid, but, uh, yeah, uh, we not, we don't use those quite so frequently in cats with hypertension uh, outside of those circumstances as we would in our canine patients where it's kind of a go-to medication.
0: Thanks, Jake. And, and with regards to these medications or particularly the amlodipine, do, do, you, um, I suppose how tolerant are cats of this and do, do owners see any changes when they're on this medication or is it difficult to, um, uh, I don't know to, to uh, un- appreciate that just because of probably other things that are going on with um, with the medical therapies.
1: Yeah, I think that, that often owners don't notice too much um, uh, when we're putting these cats on amlodipine. Um, because um, let's say they're coming in without o- any obvious target organ damage. Um, if we're controlling their blood pressure, if we're making it go from 170 to uh, 140 or, or something like that, the owner's not going to maybe notice a, a big change, uh, you know, in the coming weeks or anything like that. Um, what we do know and, and what we can try and sell to the owner is that this is going to um, hopefully uh, stop um, or decrease the likelihood of um, this cat developing uh, any catastrophic target organ damage. So we're kind of getting in before the cat comes in uh, blind or before the cat comes in um, comatose because it's got a hypertensive encephalopathy or before the kidney disease has progressed because of the cat's proteinuria. So it's more of a preventative measure than, than something that's going to, I think, make an instant impact in the owner's eyes to the, the way the cat's behaving. Uh, although they possibly could notice some, some benefit if the cat had been feeling a bit rough from, from its hypertension. Uh, it's not something we appreciate on a, a regular basis. Um, And in general, it's kind of a very well-tolerated medication if we're thinking about, well, what adverse effects could we see? Uh, I mean, if we decrease the blood pressure too much, so if the blood pressure is going below 120, uh, then uh, systolic blood pressure that is, then we we might see that the cat, the owner's reporting, the cat looks a bit wobbly or um, a bit more lethargic, something along those lines, and that would be uh, time for us to start thinking about a a decreased dose of that medication if the owners were were seeing that kind of behaviour. Uh, but the the major kind of side effect that has been reported um, in some cats uh, is kind of gingival hyperplasia, uh, so kind of proliferating gum lesions. Um, but apart from that, there's not really any adverse effects out there in the literature. It's very safe medica- medication.
0: Yeah, the other thing I was thinking, Jack, is it quite difficult, like so I suppose, with a research hat on, to to try and um, take apart or tease apart like the benefits of one. Therapy when you've got such a complex pathogenesis of of what's going on in the patient. So, how one therapy? Yes, it might decrease blood pressure, but is is it going to improve? I suppose longevity or or kidney function long term. Is uh, is there sort of research going on in 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 that, or are there databases of of these cats in existence? And, and I, I suppose uh, maybe I'm asking where's where's the where's the future um, going? So, when you're talking about um, uh you know your 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 role in in this to your your children what are you going to say uh is is going to happen in 20 30 years time
1: yeah i mean you're exactly you're absolutely right in that it is very hard to tease apart um the role of hypertension and the role of and the how effective our treatment is uh in addressing the hypertension in terms of um the patient's kind of length of life uh, and the progression of their chronic kidney disease so the kind of state of um our knowledge at the moment is that hypertension is very much associated with proteinuria and proteinuria is a risk factor for mortality and death uh, and progression of chronic kidney disease so uh, that's a given um, but uh, at the moment don't. You know, in the studies that have been done we've been unable to find um a significant impact of kind of treating the proteinuria and treating the hypertension on these patients lifespan uh, and on the progression of these patients kidney disease um, so although we can say it's very logical that you know hypertension equals proteinuria proteinuria equals increased risk factors for death uh, and progression of CKD well uh, we haven't kind of we don't have one study which says that patients whose hypertension was really well treated Um, live longer. Um, We just don't have that data at the moment. I mean, what we do know is that uh, we're going to treat the hypertension and we're going to reduce the morbidity associated with all these kind of horrible target organ uh, problems that they can get. So that goes without saying, but um, yeah, it would be really nice to uh, have a study which actually proved that uh, you know good control of, of hypertension uh, leads to um, you know, longer lifespans for these guys. We just don't have it yet. So I would hope that um, there's going to be some kind of study like that that, that, that could come into existence. Um, and um, but I would imagine it would be very challenging to do. Like you say, it's all very um, Interlinked, uh, and often you need very large numbers of these patients to to prove uh, a benefit. So um, I, I hope we're going to see something like that come out, but uh, yeah, I don't know if we're quite there yet. Um, I guess one of the one thing I w- did really like was that there was a big kind of Vet Compass study, which uh, showed that um, the the cats who had their um hypertension diagnosed as part of routine monitoring uh, rather than um in response to um you know presenting uh with, with uh, you know signs of hypertension those guys live longer um so we do know that so um that for me is a big argument in favor of um monitoring these guys routinely these older patients finding the hypertension before um it, it causes a problem because Uh, We know that um, in that cohort of patients, if we kind of start treating them before we're seeing signs of an issue, uh, they're going to potentially live longer. Um, Yeah, kind of that was a long winded answer. Sorry, Dom. Uh, um, uh, It's going to be, I think, what I would really like to see is is some kind of more concrete studies that show that, a good control of hypertension leads to, you know, longer, uh, longer lifespan, but we just we don't have it yet.
0: And, and with more of a, of a sort of, a, I don't know, a lab-based sort of research, if, if you like, what, what, what other questions do you think we need to answer apart from the actual clinical uh, effects?
1: So there were, uh, there's still a question about, um, the, uh, the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system and how, um, Kind of a dysregulation of that system uh, is involved in the pathogenesis of hypertension in in cats with uh, with CKD. I think there's more work to be done on the RAS, um, especially uh, looking at the intrarenal RAS uh, as well, um, because uh, we've predominantly in the past when we've been looking at um, how the uh, RAS is um, regulated in cats with CKD, we've been looking at blood metabolites, um, but we know from human studies that what's going on in the blood can be very different to what's going on in the kidney. Uh, So I think we definitely need to look more at uh, how these um, these mediators and, and how this system is being regulated at the, the renal level um, in these patients, which is difficult to do, uh, which is why it's not been done so far. Uh, although there was a study that's uh, come out in the last couple of months looking at um, the um, the concentration of these mediators in, in kidney tissue of cats who have unfortunately died of their disease, and uh, they found some interesting things. Um, i guess I, I myself um have been looking at um it's getting quite technical but i've been looking at uh, urinary extracellular vesicles um uh to see whether they contain any kind of biomarkers of, of hypertension um and that study's in review at the moment um so extracellular vesicles are um kind of little membranous structures that pop off uh, of cells and they're, they're present in quite high concentrations in urine and I was hoping that um, we'd find something in these kind of little membranous structures because they'll have popped off of, of loads of renal cells. And um, we looked at kind of hypertensive versus non-hypertensive cats to see um, you know, if there are any differences. And there were some differences. So that there, there are some proteins that are um, significantly different in, in those uh, little membranous vesicles um, in hypertensive cats versus non-hypertensive ones, which I, I'm very excited about uh, because um, they're proteins that, that no one's really reported uh, as being significant in, um, in previous studies where they've looked at kind of the whole urine uh, proteome rather than these kind of special little extracellular vesicles. So um, I'm kind of excited about the results of that study and um, I'm looking to um, kind of look a bit more into those proteins of interest that, that we found. Um, it's going to be coming out, well it's in review so it'll be coming out in the next few months uh, hopefully if the reviewers give us a um a positive review
0: are they quite stable stable what you're looking at
1: yeah very stable i mean that's that's why um i wanted to look at them really because the problem with the, the urine proteome sometimes is that it can be degraded uh or proteins in the urine can be degraded by pro- proteases and um, and by storing them when you freeze the urine samples and things like that. but uh, um, And proteins that are filtered through the glomerulus also can be changed by things uh, going on in the, in the tubules. But if we're looking at proteins that are packaged uh, within uh, extracellular vesicles or in the membrane of extracellular vesicles, uh, they're relatively protected so um, from, from this kind of degradation. So it, it was kind of a novel um, place to look uh, for biomarkers. Um, and um, whether that's going to be something that we can translate into to something clinical, I don't know. It's a very very early stage, obviously, and um, the the vesicles themselves require kind of a, quite a bit of lab work to obtain. So it's not something I think that well, it would be very applicable to kind of a, a benchside test or something like that for early hypertension. Um, but, um, yeah, it's something that I I'm definitely interested in and I'm hoping is going to provide us a bit more insight into the pathogenesis of, of CKD and cats anyway, but yeah, I'm still at, still at an early stage. Um, I'm, I mean, sorry, I'm just thinking aloud, but I guess, I guess another, if you, if you're asking me for another lab based thing that I think would be useful, um, to, um, to, to have in, in feline hypertension, uh, it very much would be kind of a, uh, uh, well, like a benchside biomarker that we could use to say that cats were hypertensive in, in situations of doubt. Sorry, John, it's a bit like a stream of consciousness is this, isn't it? <laughs> uh, um, but um, uh, yeah, I've sort of talked myself round to, to this idea. Uh, but um, yeah, I mean, obviously there's a big kind of overlap between cats who are um, truly hypertensive and that we should worry about it and that we should treat and that cats who have situational hypertension where um, they are just very stressed and so they have high sympathetic nervous system activity in the VEC clinic that's causing like a vasoconstriction, it's causing a tachycardia, it's going to result in uh, systolic hypertension. Um, And I think for for us uh, and for everyone, um, it can be very difficult to determine, well, is this cat truly hypertensive? Should I start treatment with this cat? Or um, should we... um, or do we need to uh, just say oh no this cat's just very stressed and it'd be lovely to have maybe a blood test that we could do um, you know on some sort of snap test that would give us kind of a yes no this cat truly is hypertensive um, and so I think that would be a, a good thing to have as well um, as I say I'm kind of looking for biomarkers in these vesicles maybe one of those biomarkers in future could be something that that would be applicable to that benchside test but um, I wouldn't mind if someone else found one. It would just be very useful for the feline population.
0: So, do you think we we see that a, a lot then, Jack? Do you see? Do you think that we have this sort of uh, I don't know a blood pressure that's around 160 or thereabouts that you you sort of ominar um whether the cat is dressed? And I suppose it's not too difficult to determine that a, that a cat is um, probably a bit anxious in the situation that they're in and and you can do all uh, appropriate things to try and mitigate that um obviously to make the cat not feel stressed but still they, they might be do you think that's that's quite considerable in the in the population of cats that you that you see Yeah I, th- I do think it's a common problem.
1: Uh, sometimes I think that you can overinterpret it though uh, I've definitely had cats that are kind of screaming at me trying to kill me. Um, and we take a blood pressure from them and it's 120 um, and so um, I think you know we, do, we, do, we can't just dismiss um, high blood pressure readings as always being um, situational hypertension because uh, we can definitely be very stressed without necessarily increasing our blood pressure uh, to, to those kind of levels. Um, the I guess that's why we're kind of trying to abide by the the ACBIM guidelines when we're diagnosing hypertension. So, um, ideally, we want to measure it as over 160 on two different occasions, seven to 14 days apart, so that we've got kind of a consistently high blood pressure before we intervene with any treatment. Uh, of course, if we look for target organ damage and we find some, then uh, we don't need that kind of second measurement because we can be fairly confident that our blood pressure truly is high. If we're seeing kind of changes like um, you know retinal changes on our ocular exam or uh, proteinuria uh, on our on our urinalysis, then uh, we can be a bit more certain and be a bit more happy about starting our treatment. Um, wh- one kind of tip that I've um, recently been giving people is that there's been uh, we, we've all started using uh, gabapentin a lot more in our, in our quite stressed patients, try and make them a bit more uh, feline patients, that is, um, as kind of a, a pre-medication that the owners can give at home prior to the clinic visit uh, when we're anticipating that their, their cat is a, a patient that's maybe particularly susceptible to getting quite stressed. Um, there's been a few studies recently that have shown that gabapentin has no effect on systolic blood pressure, but kind of a good effect on um, these kind of uh, behavioral uh, kind of um, indicators of anxiety in these patients. So um, if you are worried that oh, oh, maybe this patient is um, very anxious, then you could always get the owner to, to give them a gabapentin before they come to their clinic and they might be a bit more relaxed and um, it shouldn't affect your blood pressure reading. Um, I mean, that's on top of all the other things that we should be doing anyway, like um, ideally taking their blood pressure in a quiet room um, in the presence of the owner can make a big difference as well, um, rather than taking them out back to a a noisy prep room um, and um, yeah, kind of instigating uh, kind of things like that to try and uh, keep a lid on the, the situational hypertension.
0: Well, thank you very much, Jack. And, and uh, is, there, is there anything do you think we've, we haven't um, spoken about in this uh, relationship between chronic kidney disease and hypertension? Uh,
1: no, I mean, I, I guess that's, I don't know if I've been very logical in in, in the way I've been speaking. I think I've just been going all over the place. So I hope that people have been managing to to keep up with what I'm saying. I feel like I've been jumping around quite a bit. Um, but uh, yeah, it's a complicated subject. Uh, I think but we've talked about a lot
0: of stuff. Well, we'll wrap it up there. So, so uh, thank you very much, Jack, for your uh, for your time and um, uh, for your time today. And hopefully, we'll get you back on at uh, at some point in the in the future, maybe to to, to see what um, what your research findings show. Um, so, thank you very much. Thank you. And uh, thank you for listening. So, don't forget to hit that subscribe button on your generic fruit based device, and that way you don't even worry about seeing a pop. So if you could leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcast or Acast or wherever you get your podcast, that would be great. And don't forget to tell your friends, vet friends, or any anybody we're we're, we're happy to have anyone listen. So we'll place some show notes in the RVC pages, and I'll send I'll put the link of uh, of the paper that Jack was mainly referring to, um in in that as well. So if you just type in RVC Clinical Podcast into your search engine of choice, it should be top of the tree. So if you have any comments or suggestions for this podcast, you can get in touch. You can either email dbarfield at rvc.ac.uk Or tweet at Don Barfield. Until next time, bye bye.